Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Okay, you're all here for remedial summer LGBT math. Today, we're going to be working on lesbian math word problems. Let's try this one. Jane spent $42 for shoes. This was $14 less than twice what she spent for a blouse and one-seventh of the $400 she spent on corduroy. Is Portia de Rossi hot or what? Okay, I got this. X is always the unknown, and in this case, that represents how much polar fleece Julie owns. Or, actually, X might be whether she has a carabiner for her Nalgene bottle. Carry the two. Mr. Hill? Yes, Kyone? The answer is Portia de Rossi is totally hot? I'm sorry. The correct answer is Anna Paquin is also very hot. Dang, I knew that. Let's try another one. Amber has two Mac notebooks, nine Ani DeFranco CDs, and two cats. What time is tonight's Wicca Circle meeting? This is tricky because a lot of times they try to have the meeting end in time for everybody to get home to watch women's basketball. Time's up. Let's try one more. Two Subarus set out at 2 p.m. from the same point headed in the same direction. The average speed of the Outback is 30 miles per hour slower than twice the speed of the Legacy. Why did Lindsay Lohan and Samantha Ronson break up? Mr. Hill, uh, may I ask you something? You probably want to ask why all these word problems are based on shallow, superficial cliches and stereotypes, especially during Gay Pride Month, when, really, we should be celebrating assimilation and achievement. No, I just wanted to ask if I could use the bathroom, but now that you mention it, yeah. Also, I don't think Lindsay really supported Samantha's music. Today on the show, the fabulous June Thomas, Slate.com culture and LGBT writer and host of Ask a Homo. Also, Big Papa, Mark Boughton, and the world's greatest World Cup cartoonist. And now he wants to ask, what's the polite way to get Rob Lowe to lift a restraining order? Colin McEnroe. Let me just explain what I said to Rob Lowe. It's very similar to what William Hurt says to Holly Hunter in Broadcast News. Let's just go on a Caribbean vacation and see what we've got here. But he's just, you know, he's not open to that. Uh, all right. So I just want to say, as usual, I wrote the introduction. I think it's important to say that today so that all the email goes to me. All right. So feel free if you were at one way, in one way or another really uh, upset by that email. You should, by the introduction, rather, you should send me an email at Colin, C-O-L-I-N, at WNPR.org. Do not blame Kion Wolf or Greg Hill. For that, I take the whole weight here. So, uh, joining us now, we are so excited to have this happen. Uh, June Thomas is with us. Uh, she's one of my favorite writers and voices uh, at uh, at Slate, where she's a culture critic and the editor of Outward Slate's LGBTQ section and a double X gabfester. And as was mentioned in the uh, introduction, uh, sort of co-host, really, of a feature called Ask a Homo. Uh, and she has graciously uh, indicated that she'd be willing, if the right topic came up today, uh, to give us our own little local version of Ask a Homo. So if, you're, if you can think of something to challenge or to ask a, a sort of a folk way or, a, you know, uh, an idea, something like that, uh, give us a call, 860-275-7266. Actually, June, I should let you frame, what, if you were to sum up what Ask a Homo is and does, what would be, like the kinds of things that Ask a Homo, that feature undertakes, so our listeners would know whether they could participate today, how, how would you put it? Well, um, I think it's kind of, gay-splaining. So 
So sometimes the best questions are the ones where, as you say, people have gotten these ideas about gay people seem to do this thing, and then they ask, do they really do this thing, and why do they do this thing? So, for example, uh, you know, do lesbians really move in together more quickly than straight people, or do gay men call each other she, and is it okay if I do it? Um, and questions like that. Um, and what we always say is no judgments. Like what we want people to feel free to ask any question, and they should not feel any shame uh, for wondering about things. Uh, and just we 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 will answer them without any judgment in return. All right. See, that makes me feel comfortable maybe even trying to formulate my whole Rob Lowe situation in the form of a question. But I I don't know how to do that right now, but I I think I could get there. So uh, this is a perfect segue for one of the things that you wanted to talk about. It's June. It's uh, Gay Pride Month. It's Gay Pride Month per, among other things, the the Barack Obama White House. Um, And So one thing that you're sort of uh, interested in talking about, too, is what kind of relationship? I mean, everybody, as you just suggested, everybody has their own their own relationship with with all of all of these questions. But, you know, as you look at it and as somebody that people look to for writing about these issues, how does Gay Pride look month look in 2014? Well, you know, it's funny. I the fact that I thought that I'd already missed Manhattan Pride and in fact, I haven't until next week shows how just completely connected to the event I am. Um, for me, pride is, is a little bit like I'm kind of the anti, um, uh, you know, improv sort of response, whereas in improv you're supposed to say yes, and for me, pride is no, but, <laughs> like, I don't usually go, but I think it's great, and I, <laughs> you know, it's like I wish it was in October. I wish the Stonewall had been raided in a more temperate month. <laughs> Because I just don't like being outside in the sun, in the crowds. It's all so sweaty and all the smoke from the street food. But at the same time, I really do think that pride, it it does so many things for so many people. It's um, a chance for young people to just see the variety of the community, uh, the diversity. I think often, you know, we associate it even as gay people with the kind of the outrageous floats and and the sort of the, the people who who can squeeze a lot into small packages in terms of their clothing. But, <laughs> you know, it's also about churches and social service organizations and very sort of practical things. It's also just about seeing each other. And these days, as gay people are sort of assimilating and as there's less overt homophobia. I think it's really a kind of an educational thing for straight people too to to see. Wow, there's a there's a, a center for gay seniors, or there's uh, my church has a group for GLBT people. So there are many many purposes. I just kind of don't really like to go myself. Uh, you'd like to be a part of Gay Pride Month in say Seattle or something, someplace where it's a little cooler. <laughs> exactly. um, or, you know, there's some really great programming on television, and mm. so I like to really take full advantage of that. Our number, if you want to relate to this, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. I mean, I guess part of it also is, you know, people kind of set up a false dichotomy. They say, well, should should that kind of celebration um, celebrate in a very kind of defiant and outlandish way, or should it celebrate uh, assimilation and achievement? And, of course, the right. or there is, necess- is unnecessary, right? I mean, Absolutely. it's an and, not an or, right? That's that's exactly right. I mean, as I say, you, there, although certain parts of it tend to get more attention, 
there's a very wide range of events and stalls and even people in a parade, you know, of the, say there are a hundred floats in a parade, which would admittedly be a very big parade, maybe four of them would be outrageous and attention-grabbing. And, of course, they, those are the ones, naturally, I would do it too, that, whose picture turns up in the paper newspaper coverage of Pride. Uh, but, uh, you know, that, that's, that's to be expected. There are also lots of really boring aspects of gay life that, that show up in, in Pride celebrations. But I do, at the same time, I really do think that it's important to to show pride. Uh, I think there's so many factors that make people, especially young people, uh, feel shame and feel embarrassment. Even just yesterday, I kind of accidentally went out in a T-shirt that had the words lesbian and gay on. And I mean, nobody could be more out than me. And at the same time, once I realized it, I was a little embarrassed for no reason. In Park Slope, Brooklyn, Colin McEnroe, you couldn't have a more supposed <laughs> place. Nevertheless, I had, you know, just a slight off feeling. So it just proves that there's still, it's good to just be reminded that there's gay is good and there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. I know. I think you are the pure distillation of that. Uh, I mean, if June Thomas feels the slightest qualm about a gay and lesbian t-shirt that she's wearing in Park Slope, Brooklyn, we haven't solved all the problems, right? Exactly. I mean, the singularity has not yet been achieved. It's yeah. true. You're the walking distillation. Well, I, you know, another thing that's happening, and that is inevitable, uh, is obviously that, that corporate America looks at this and thinks, and not just Subaru either. You know, I mean, <laughs> you know, corporate America looks at stuff like this and goes, well, these are markets. You know, these are markets, and, and you know, if we're not Chick-fil-A or something Something like that, right, then, right. then you know, maybe United Airlines should be part of all of this. Which, which, by the way, they are. And so, how do you feel about that kind of piggybacking? Well, you know, it's funny because I know that a lot of people kind of, you know, grumble about that. And I, you know, I think it's a positive thing. I mean, there are certain certain sponsorships that bother me a bit. There's a certain vodka company that's very supportive of the gay community sponsors and advertisers on a lot of sites and and uh, not mine weirdly enough but um and i do there are certain associations i mean traditionally there have because gay bars were one of the few places historically that gay people could socialize there has there have been a lot of problems with alcohol in the community and so you know i sometimes have a little bit of uh worry about that but at the same time yeah, I drink, so not too much. Um, but, you know, I think if it brings, if it allows us to have better funded uh, events, I and mean, not so much pride, but just money coming into the community that maybe some of the, it keeps the prices low for those, you know, stalls, for those church groups and for those social service groups, then it's pretty much a good thing. And I also tend to think, you know, here in Brooklyn, in New York City, we had all the different boroughs. Well, I don't know about Staten Island, but all the different boroughs, as far as I know, have their own little pride events. And I went to the one in my neighborhood, and it was very low-key. It was very uncorporate. So, you know, it's. I think it's one of those things we probably don't need to worry too much about that. There are other larger problems for us to deal with. And I think at the sort of purely philosophical level, I, I would struggle with if you're going to get mad at Chick-fil-A and whatever unenlightened businesses there are out there, then it's sort of, you sort of have to then welcome to a certain degree businesses that aren't like that. I agree. And, I, you know, I suspect, too, that those companies 
to a certain extent are establishing a brand and marketing themselves to a community, to those people who kind of want to support a company that's anti-gay. They might be they might do certain things just to say, hey, you know, come shop with us. So yes, exactly. Therefore, when a company aligns itself with our community, perhaps, I don't know if we have to support it with our dollars, but we certainly shouldn't complain about it, I suspect. Is there, um, will there be a moment where, you know, I mean, where there isn't a St. Patrick's Day parade in America that doesn't welcome gay people, where there, there are just, you know, so right. many barriers have fallen down that this thing does start to feel outdated? Or is is pride not necessarily antithetical to, you know, to the process uh, of, of assimilation and acceptance? I think it's definitely evolving as gay people assimilate more into the fabric of American life. Uh, and I, in a weird way, I think that those outrageous aspects of pride might become even more important as time passes. For the moment, there are still many, you know, living in, in eastern enclaves, it can be very easy to forget that there are, you know, what, 31, excuse me, yes, 31 states in the United States that don't have marriage equality. And there are many very serious problems, certainly trans people face very serious problems uh, all around the country right now, not to mention the rest of the world. So we're not in in a, a place where we can think about being post-gay anytime yet. But um, I do think that in a few years we might need to celebrate more of that sort of outrageous side of the community because we've gotten to be so boring and assimilated. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you know, it's funny, I actually just got a piece from a young woman uh, you know i think she's 18 years old she is heterosexual but she has lesbian parents and she was talking about you know she hadn't been to pride you know since she was a kid and was you know pushed around in her pram but she went this week in her town in in rhode island and said that she was kind of freaked out by how many of her straight high school friends were just so excited about pride and it's almost become a place to sort of show your allydom, which is an interesting, you know, that always was part of it, but I think that's becoming more and more important. So, you know, everything is evolving, um, and I think we should be very open to that. Although, once again, I think that's a geo-specific trend, and we still yeah. have we still have states that, you know, I mean, you talked about marriage equality. We have states now that are are attempting to enact new religious exemption laws that, that, that give people legal rights not to serve uh, right. LGBT people. So Indeed. Yeah, that's, that's kind of the, that's the flip side of that coin. Of course, the more outlandish you look in your parade, the more you confirm the biases of, of the the person out in that state who thinks, oh, if I have to serve somebody who's LGBT, it'll be that guy there, you know. Right. With Although the if they of, only don't serve that guy, we should be fine. Right, exactly. All right, so we, our time is limited. We need to move on. And so the last thing, I'd forgotten about your dentistry series, so the oh. last thing I was bracing myself for was a conversation about dentistry. On the other hand, I'm thrilled to have one. I'd, for, I'd forgotten that you'd done this multi-part series for Slate about dentistry, that you have a continuing, abiding uh, interest in, in it. And, and so... Abiding. So let's sort of say, you know, talk, let's talk about where we're at right now. And one of the things that you've talked about is this notion of the, or written about, is the notion of the mid-level dental professional, something that most right. people can't, don't even know about. So, so help us out there. Yeah, so one of the things that's happening these days, uh, partly to do with just the way that dentistry is structured, which is that more than 90% of American dentists work in private practices. They're essentially small business people. And that really determines a lot of the way that they practice. So 
in this country we have 130 million people who don't have dental insurance. But we also have millions more who have insurance or coverage that's provided by programs like Medicare, sorry, by Medicaid, there is no dentistry provision in Medicare, by Medicaid and S-CHIP and things like that, mostly for kids. But many dentists, and in fact in some states, as many as 90% of dentists won't see Medicaid patients because the reimbursement rates are so low. So this is a kind of a chronic problem that has been, you know, people have been trying solutions. One of the ones I've suggested is something like a nurse practitioner for dentistry. This mid-level provider tag is a terrible name, but often they're called dental therapists. Um, in, in Alaska, they have a, a different name, but essentially they're like nurse practitioners. Um, they have less training than a dentist, and they do just a few things. Uh, in Minnesota, where they have them, they just do uh, extractions and fillings and, to a certain extent, examinations, but always under the supervision of a dentist. Uh, they will not do anything more complicated. And the idea is that people should work to the, the top of the scope of their practice. So dentists should be doing the more difficult things or can do the more difficult procedures, the, you know, the dental surgery, the really tricky uh, jobs. And these dental therapists will take care of, of other patients and other kinds of treatments. But there's a lot of pushback to this. Dentists have fought them all around the country. Maine just got them, uh, or just passed the legislation anyway. So it's happening, but very slowly, because uh, the dentist, dental establishment spends a lot of money uh, to, to kind of fight back against them. You know, in the series that you did, you kind of explored also this uh, the unusual relationship we have with dental care as opposed to other kinds uh, of medical care. Dental care is a little bit more like veterinary care. Like, I don't really know how much it costs for me to get a chest X-ray or, right. you know, but I know how much it costs for my dog, you know, to get his leg looked at. And I also exactly. know how much a lot of dental care costs because I'm simply not covered the same way. I'm going to wind up paying for it. Uh, you know, I, ha- I have a much more intimate and vexed understanding of what the price structure is. And, right. and and yet that doesn't seem to be addressed very much by by policy, right? You looked at that, that there are things in CHIP. There, there are things sort of within, you know, the uh, Obama-generated health care reform that, that that seep into dentistry, but not in, not in a real sort of overarching way. Right. And I think a lot of the reason for that is that, you know, America has amazing, people have amazing teeth in this country. There, there's the people who get care get great care. No one has a smile like an American smile. But in some places, people simply cannot access dental care whatsoever. Or another sort of division is that if you've never had a toothache or you've never not been able to afford a procedure, if you've never put off dealing with a root canal, you really don't know that some people do have problems and you don't know that people have to pay out of pocket. Um, I mean, I've spent of my own money, even though for many years I had really fine dental, you know, top-of-the-line dental coverage, I've paid out about $50,000 for my to have my English teeth turned into some vague facsimile of American teeth. Um, and, you know, the dentists are much more aware of the cost. They'll offer different kind of price points uh, as you're choosing, like, this is what I'd recommend, that costs X. We could also do this, that costs why. I mean, that's something that you don't get with medicine, which is probably a good thing. Um, and, of course, you can't really get into the same financial trouble with dentistry 
for the most part, you're not going to, you know, have that kind of catastrophic problem that people can certainly have with medical issues. But you also, we just also aren't aware of the really severe problems that a lot of people have. And if your teeth are messed up, you simply can't get a middle-class job. It's very hard to live a middle-class life or even to eat nutritious foods. Yeah, and, and and then there's also a spiral. I mean, it really does start to get into other kinds of problems, too. I mean, gum disease leads to other problems, all these things. You really do start getting set up for strokes and all kinds of stuff uh, that can start in your teeth. So, you know, I mean, it, it really kind of does make sense to treat it as regular medical care, except for some reason or other, it's not. Yes, and, and that would be the greatest thing if it was all just part of, you know, one of the big things that we see these days is so much of uh, emergency room coverage or, or, you know, people going to the emergency rooms are going with dental problems. And the people there can't help them because the vast majority of hospitals don't have a dentist around to actually provide care. So, you know, people are given pain control. They're sometimes given antibiotics. And then they told to go see a dentist. Well, if they could see a dentist, they probably wouldn't have that problem in the first place. All right. So we've got more work to do here. June Thomas, yeah. so great to hear your voice on our show. We're so honored to have you. Thank you for having me. All right. Come back soon. And uh, meanwhile, we're going to take a break. Uh, We're going to switch gears very abruptly. Uh, If you're just chiming in or tuning in from another place, we'll be talking about the mayor of Danbury, who is a mayor unlike other mayors. I'm your dentist. And I get off on the pain I And though it may cause my patience distress, somewhere, somewhere in heaven above me, I know, I know that my mom was proud of me. Oh, mama. Cause I'm a dentist and a Yes, ladies and gentlemen, meet the only mayor in Connecticut who has his own theme music. To the best of my knowledge, there, there may be other ones. It's Mayor Mar- Mar- Mark Bowton. He's the mayor of Danbury. I'm aware that some people actually do listen to the show, and they're, they're from elsewhere. They're not from Connecticut. In fact, we got a lovely shout-out today on Twitter from uh, Mike Pesca at The Gist. Uh, which will probably steer some people in in here who have less of an interest in Connecticut politics uh, and uh, the mayors of our cities than than most of you listening. But that's fine. You're going to enjoy this anyway. First of all, uh, Mayor Bowton, welcome to our show. Oh, thanks for having me. A huge fan. And we are sorry to be having this conversation with you kind of, you know, on the occasion of your having uh, had to drop out uh, of the hunt for the Republican nomination for governor of Connecticut. Tell us what happened. I mean, obviously, Connecticut instituted the citizen election program. That was supposed to really kind of open the field up, take the big money out of it, make it possible uh, for lots of different candidates to compete. So one would have hoped that uh, it would have worked out for you. Why didn't it? I agree with your assessment, and I think it does. I really think it does. I, listen, I couldn't even be at the table if, if it wasn't for the Citizens Election Program. You know, we had a little bit different calendar, a little bit different cycle than other people. I had a re-election last November, so I really had to focus my fundraising on the local municipal race, and then we were going to pivot over to the uh, gubernatorial race after the first of the year. We had decided on pooling our contributions with uh, Lieutenant Governor 
a candidate. Unfortunately, that uh, uh, didn't quite work out the way we were hoping it would. Uh, and so that really left us post-convention in uh, a difficult spot, back on our heels a little bit. Tried to team up with Mayor Loretti from Shelton to see uh, uh, if we could uh, get ba uh, ballot access through uh, uh, the petition process, but I'm going to guess we fell a little bit short as far as that goes. So just unfortunate. We, I think we had a solid plan. Uh, and we just weren't able to execute it the way we had hoped. You know, this did give you, you were in the hunt long enough to, to be around the state a lot. And of course, four years ago, you were around the state uh, as a lieutenant governor candidate. Um, as opposed to how everybody claims to understand the issues and claims to understand what a race in 2014 in a place like Connecticut is all about, what do you think it's all about? What do you think the defining issue or one or two issues uh, of 2014 are going to be? Well, I think any candidate uh, who wants to become the next governor of the state needs to speak to, to one Connecticut, that right now we are a divided Connecticut between the haves and the have-nots, and the middle class has been absolutely decimated. We can argue about what policy decisions made that happen, but the fact of the matter is that there are two Connecticut's with two separate educational systems and two separate uh, uh, wealth indicators and uh, two separate economic opportunities, and, and that's really uh, where I think the next candidate who, who can really unify the state and say, look, here's how we have to go. This isn't all about all labor, and it's not about all management, uh, but at some point we have to meet in the middle to ensure that we really are one people. You know, I mean, we we laugh about the fact that you tweet uh, as Big Papa and you often <laughs> invoke uh, hip hop idioms and pop culture idioms. But, you know, in some ways, it, it's it's not just a joke because so many of the people that I encounter in politics, whether they're Republicans or Democrats, they seem to be almost only living that life. They have a relatively small palette uh, of other interests. Uh, they, they don't get pop culture. <laughs> I mean, you could try a lot of things out on Dick Blumenthal before he sort of perked up and, and understood what TV show you were referencing. <laughs> <laughs> or or what piece of music? I mean, they just you know he seems to he like I'm singling him out, but a lot of people in that world seem to have kind of blinders on. You do kind of shine a little bit as somebody who seems to be you know you're watching The Bachelor and live tweeting it and stuff like that. I mean, it, it, do you see that as kind of a strength, putting kind of a human face on politics, living a life that other people recognize? Well, you know, when I started doing social media, you know regardless of what account and what uh, media that is in the social media world. I said I could go two ways. I could be sort of this dry, two-dimensional politician that puts out press releases and uh, other kinds of sort of, you know, uh, announcements, or I could just be me. And I made a decision that, look, I'm just going to be who I am uh, for a couple of reasons. One, you know, I believe strongly that um, all of us are, are have frailties and all of us make mistakes, and I'm not afraid to own up to them when I do. Uh, but two, I, I think it's important for people to have an insight uh, as to the kind of person you are. And, you know, I can be funny, I can be snarky, I can whine about silly things or point out, uh, the, you know, the, some of my own uh, foibles and faults uh, and have a good time doing it. And I think that's kind of what social media is supposed to be all about. And let me just say this, it's been a way that people have been able to connect with their government in a very different way. So, for example, if you look at uh, Twitter, uh, you know, that market is about 18 to about 24. Uh, that's a Probably 80% of my followers are between 18 and 24 uh, on Twitter. And those folks, I've gotten them to register to vote. doesn't mean they voted for me, but they did go out and vote, which I thought was a great thing. Uh, and I've got them engaged in the political process when they never would even remotely care who the mayor was or what the heck was going on in their own community. 
Um, you know, another thing that you you are is you're obviously you're the mayor of a city uh, running. For, you were running for statewide office. Um, sometimes those things kind of bump into one another. I mean, you uh, at one point had to sort of deal with your own ties to uh, to Michael Michael Bloomberg's mayors against illegal gun, guns. How was that going to affect your overall state profile as a mayor? At one point, you I think had supported that uh, idea. Um, I, I think uh, looking at a gubernatorial run, it seemed a little bit more complicated. Can you can you sort of tease that out for me a little bit and and, and tell me how you see it now? Yeah, look, I, I mean, I, the, the litmus test for me on that whole decision was, you know, would I have done this if I wasn't running for governor? And the answer was yes. However, I, I completely recognize that it was seen through the you know the lens of running for governor and statewide office, and people would say, ah, he's doing that because he needs Republican votes. But here's the reality: the reality is that the people uh, who are uh, strong uh, gun to a you know, Second Amendment advocates, they don't trust me and they don't like me because I once was a member of, of Bloomberg's group. And the people, you know, who are, nobody should ever own a gun anywhere for any reason, they don't like me because I bailed on the group, which means, for me, that's probably a good sign. It means that I'm in the 65% of our population that says, you know, you should be able to own a firearm, but there should be some rational, reasonable uh, you know, restrictions on that, and there should be uh, background checks, and we don't want crazy people getting a hold of firearms, and we don't want uh, criminals getting a hold of them as well. Um, and so, in a way, that sort of told me I was right on the issue. But I'll, you know, also tell you that the Bloomberg group got uh, way off of their mission, and that was part of my concern. Never once have I ever spoken to the mayoral outreach person, never called, even when I said I was leaving. For me, I would that'd be the first call I'd make. I'd say, well, let's talk to this guy. What's going on? Why is he quitting? Can we talk him out of it? You know, is there something that that, that we can do that that he's not feeling the love, if you will? So, you know, it's just kind of astounding to me that they weren't even interested. It, they just immediately went on the attack um, and said, you know, you're you're obviously, you know, you're for everybody to have a gun everywhere in every situation, and that's not the case either. I also think that, you know, they really have morphed into, now it's called everytown.org, I think. Mm-hmm. So Mayors Against Legal Guns doesn't even exist anymore. Um, and that's a much broader mandate, something probably I would have to take to my city council for ratification. And I'm not even sure if there would be the votes there uh, for that organization. So a lot of decisions, and, and absolutely that I recognize people will look at it through the lens of a, a governor's race. All right. Well, certainly as a cynical political moves go, it, it wouldn't <laughs> wouldn't work very well. I mean, if you manage to alienate two distinct constituencies with one move. Uh, it seems uh, like n- not a cyn- cynical uh, political move. All right. So, um, you know, now uh, you're you're out of the race. Um, you you and Tom Foley, who, you know, I mean, obviously, John McKinney's going to fight a good fight and sure. if he can possibly do it. But you know, people, uh, the numbers really favor Tom Foley at this point. You uh, know him. You've been his running mate. On the other hand, in that miracle world of social media and Twitter, sometimes you and he didn't seem to be getting along all that well uh, post gubernatorial campaign. You've endorsed him. Um, tell us why you endorsed him. Tell, tell, tell me why a person should vote for Tom Foley at this point. Well, I, look, I think Tom Foley still needs to do a lot of work in his campaign. So I think that's a seminal question you asked. And I'm not sure I'd be the right person to be able to share that with you. I think Tom is a good man. He's an intelligent man. He's insightful. But, but just going around saying, I only lost by 6,500 votes, therefore you should vote for me this time around, is not going to win this election. You know, the, the top of this broadcast, we talked about the one Connecticut, and, and Tom has got to get out there. and He's got to say, look, this is not acceptable that we really have two separate education systems, one that works very well in the suburb, suburban areas and one that's absolutely catastrophically failing our children in our urban core areas. So those are the kinds of conversations I think he's going to need to engage in. And I think with the right policy people around him, he'll be able to, to carry uh, that water. But I also wanted to respect the will of the convention. 
and and understanding that you know uh, six, about sixty percent of the people voted for Tom at the convention, and um, uh, you know John uh, McKinney, who's a good man and who I respect immeasurably, and will work my tail off for him should he be our nominee. He wouldn't even have made the uh, uh, primary if it wasn't for Foley giving his delegates to him at the very end, because Foley didn't want a two-way primary against me. So um, at the end of the day, I had to take all those things into consideration so that I really kind of want to respect the wishes of the party here. But I have to tell you, I like John McKinney, and he's a good man, and, and uh, should he win, I, I will be there to support him. All right, so um, you're... Well, one last question here, or maybe it's maybe a series of questions. I'm not really sure. So you're you're an urban guy, you know. You're a Danbury guy. You're you like old school hip hop. You got you made the New York Magazine approval matrix for your Twitter feed that's full of Star Trek references while you're dealing with storm updates and stuff like that. You're you're sort of you're so that's you know that's pretty hip. That's pretty culturally aware. Um, you, you know you're you're I think a moderate in a lot a lot of your views. I think people there are some people listening to this show right now are th- who are thinking. This guy is great, and he's very likable. Why is he a Republican exactly? Um, not that Republicans aren't great and likable, but you know, there's a lot of things about you that might point in the other direction. So why are you still a member of the Republican Party as opposed to something else? Well, I think, first of all, I always had the theory that if I left the party, there'd be nobody left to shut the lights off. So, <laughs> um, But you know, part of um, where I come from on our party, and, we're, and, it, and if you ask me, what are you going to work on the next couple of years, is I want to push the sort of boundaries uh, to have a to have a much bigger tent that we have to be much more tolerant of people with other ideas, um, you know, in terms of public policy issues, and that if we agree with somebody in ninety or eighty percent of where they are, that should be good enough uh, to ensure that we can grow our party because we're atrophying right now um, because we're not tolerant of other people's ideas. Um, so I think that's part of our our challenge. But um, I've stayed a Republican because I'm a fiscal conservative, and essentially I'm a libertarian at heart. Look, I, I don't want the government telling what people should be doing in their bedrooms, what they should be doing in their homes. Uh, I don't want the government between a, you know, a woman and her doctor. Um, I, I frankly want government out of our lives as much as possible. But I do think there's some core things that government should be doing. You know, they've got to put the fire out. They've got to catch the bad guy. They've got to educate our children. They've got to give people a, a hand up instead of a handout and, and help them uh, get on the path to economic success when they're down. Those are all things I think government can do and do very, very well. So. That's probably why, you know, I'm still sticking around and still with the party. Um, But I acknowledge we've got a lot of work to do um, in places like Connecticut, but across the country. And I I think uh, we've got to do a much better job at engaging people and explaining what we're all about. All right. Mark Bowden, uh, still in the unbeautiful game of politics. In the next segment, we're going to be talking about the beautiful game of soccer. So stay tuned for that. Uh, Great to talk to you, Mayor Mark Bowden. We'll be back with a uh, cartoonist, perhaps the only official sanctioned World Cup cartoonist. Uh, and soccer analyst. It makes me feel good to know that today in our cities, there are little kids saying, if I stay in school and become mayor of Danbury, I can make it in hip-hop someday. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our interns are Allison Ehrenreich and Lily Tyson. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Katie Tolarski is our executive producer. The part of Bill Curry was played by Clint Dempsey. For show pages, articles, and video, the Faith Middleton Show staff practicing corner kicks, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, pickleball and other up-and-coming sports. And now...
back to Colin. All right, we are back. And, you know, there was sort of talk coming into this year, as there kind of sometimes is every four years, that this would be some sort of a tipping point year, a year where when Americans really got international soccer, really understood the World Cup. And I actually have heard that maybe about four other times across 16 years, except I think this year it's really true. Um, uh, to me, one of the little sort of uh, the, the signs I was getting yesterday was uh, at one point on Twitter, uh, Amanda Hess, who frequently appears on this show, said that it sounded like uh, uh, 10 hipsters were being slaughtered outside her apartment because of the screaming and yelling that was going on nearby. Uh, a lot of people watching these games, a lot of people getting very excited about it. So we decided to find somebody with a really exciting and interesting mission vis-a-vis World Cup soccer. That's Matthew Diffie. He is a, a writer and cartoonist whose work appears primarily in The New Yorker and Texas Monthly. Uh, he's the editor of three volumes uh, of the rejection collection, Cartoons You Never Saw and Never Will See in The New Yorker. Uh, and he's currently working on a book of cartoons, hand-drawn jokes for smart, attractive people. But very significantly for our purposes today, she, he's doing a regular thing. As part of the uh, New Yorker's uh, pretty extensive World Cup coverage, uh, he's one of the, the featured people. Uh, he's both cartooning and writing uh, about the World Cup. So, Matthew Diffie, welcome to our show. Hey, thanks for having me. So ex- explain the project a little bit more. Before we actually, I, I, I want to talk specifically about yesterday's U.S.-Portugal game, because in a lot of ways it, it is, it's a great game for people to sort of learn to, to love and also be driven crazy by soccer by. Uh, yeah. but, but talk about the, the project you're doing right now. Well, I just, you know, I'm, I'm obsessed with soccer, love soccer, played my whole life. And so I was watching all the games anyway, and I, you know, while I'm doodling or whatever. And uh, I just had a drawing that I ended up doing, which I actually posted today, but I drew it about a week ago. And I was like, this is kind of funny. Maybe other people would actually like it more than just my you know, Facebook fans. So I uh, sent it to New Yorker and said, let, let me do something about the World Cup. And they thought it was a great idea. And there you go. I got uh, a, you know, and uh, finally, a cartoonist's perspective on the World Cup, what we've all needed. Yeah, no, I think that is what we've all needed. Well, in a way, it it is great because, you know, for example, you did this sort of don't let the eagle uh, drive the bus thing, which was to really kind of illustrate a specific um, idea that you were going to go into in the text part of your your entry in in greater detail. But sometimes it is kind of helpful for people who are a little bit put off, a little bit intimidated by the complexity of soccer, the unfamiliarity of it. If you can start with kind of a a simple idea. So maybe give them a sense. What was uh, Don't Let the Eagle drive the bus uh, all about yeah well this phrase uh parking the bus has become like a soccer term for playing a predominantly defensive game like the idea i guess is you park your team bus in front of your goal so no one can score Mm -hmm. and uh then of course there's a children's book don't let the pigeon drive the bus (laughs) so i thought it would be a funny way to to explain what the u.s soccer strategy should be by saying don't let the eagle drive the bus in other words, we want the eagle to park the bus. And that's a controversial position in some American soccer fan circles because they want us to prove that we can play this beautiful, flowing game that the rest of the world plays. And um, I think there's certainly a time for that. And there's just other times where we've got to just focus on the American style, which is, you know, is a fighting sort of tough spirit kind of game. Anyway, so that was the way, of, the way of doing it in a fun sort of parody of the Mo Willems children's book. You know, I was going to ask you about that idea of the American spirit, the American style, or 
anybody's style. I mean, one of the arguments that I've heard recently is as soccer becomes even more internationalized and kind of cross-nationalized, I mean, the Americans have a European coach, they have players who play in, on, on lots of, of European teams, and you can sort of parse every team that way, right? I mean, whether we're talking about U.S. or Argentina or, or whatever, you know, some of the players are, are indigenous soccer players there, but, but they're also, they're just playing all over the world. So is it still really the case as it was, say, 12 years ago? that the Netherlands plays a specific style of Netherlandian soccer? You know, I, I, it surprisingly is to me watching the game. Um, it, it certainly is less so, but it still is. It's, and that's one of the more fascinating things to me, to see different sort of national approaches to the game. And, of course, it's not absolutely, you know, consistent all the time. But there are flashes and there's, there's moments. And, yeah, to me that's, that's the exciting part. So let's talk about yesterday's game because I think a lot of people, I mean, have have sort of tuned in for the first time to to soccer this year, and and if, if they're not going to watch any other games, they're going to watch the U.S. games. Yeah. They they had the Ghana game, and then they had yesterday's game, which which I don't know if they know. I mean, I've I've haven't watched as much soccer as you have, but I played it for many years, and I I do love it, and I still yeah. watch it. And I'm not sure people know what a completely remarkable game that was yesterday, and. Oh, in all the ways that it completely, really, it defied the paradigm. It defied expectations. Yeah. Everything that happened was something that that wasn't supposed to happen. But I'll let you pick up that baton and talk about what you want to talk about. Oh, just first of all, it was just so much fun to watch. So I don't know if fun is the right word, but just so yeah, entertaining and engaging. I was just like, you know, up and down, out of off the couch, and yelling and nervous and elated, and yeah, it was just a great game. Very fun to watch, and. um yeah, I mean, Portugal, I think they're ranked, I don't know if they're fourth in the world, but sixth, something, they're way up there. Yeah. And, you know, Ronaldo is the player of the year last year, arguably the best player in the world, if you don't count Messi. Um, and we're America. And, you know, the biggest thing for me was just realizing that we're, you know, we're in this game. We're playing this game against Portugal. And I've sort of turned, changed my tune a little bit you know as far as like apologizing for u.s soccer and you know give us another generation or two we'll be there but you know we took it to them we won that game as far as you know the flow of play and uh oh the gut-wrenching end was just just hard to take but at the same point you know we we got a we got a tie against portugal which if you'd have told me that you know a couple weeks ago i'd have been thrilled and i mean not only did we get that draw against portugal but i mean we did it in the teeth of, of I mean, every at the beginning, the the worst possible thing happened in the beginning. So yeah. you go into a game like this, Portugal's much better. Soccer also has a kind of inevitability about it. If certain things happen, they are almost uh, impossible to undo. Yeah. So so in that category, we would probably place giving up a really easy, essentially un, barely earned goal right. in the first five minutes of the game to Portugal, which yeah, a team that can kill you, you know, on purpose, and we gave them an accidental, you know, fluky goal. And and like you say, the momentum just it can. That's what what's a, a fascinating thing about the game to me. The 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 the, the way of momentum turns, and you know, a team can just get the wind in their sails and just you know attack and attack and kill you. And they didn't do that. America just bounced right back and actually took the game to them. And we were yeah, we were we were the better team, I think. 
And and I mean, in addition to that, I mean, we were hearing all these statistics from the commentators saying, you know, the last 25, I mean, essentially never, <laughs> I mean, for all intents and purposes, never does anybody come back uh, against yeah. Portugal uh, after giving up a really easy goal that early. And so yeah. the idea that we were going to do it seemed uh, even less likely because uh, for all the reasons that you were saying initially, I mean, people tend not to estimate the, the U.S. quite at that level. And, you know, the U.S. is a little bit offensively hobbled, too. I mean, its primary striker is is sitting down with a, a, a hamstring injury. It meant that they'd had to go to this rather unusual formation with one striker and five midfielders and four defenders. And, and so, I mean, what were the chances? And then two goals. Yeah. And the, the first one, the Jermaine Jones goal, was as good a goal as you'll ever see. So as far as for the people who really want to prove that America can play the game, there you go. That was a beautiful goal. I mean, the second goal was great because it, you know, it brought us ahead, but it, you know, it did go off of Clint Dempsey's belly button, yeah. which, hey, we'll take it. So um, one thing that people get introduced to when they are watching international soccer for the first time, they're not familiar or familiar with the, the pattern of the games. And I think it was upsetting to a lot of people who were watching the game. They were uninitiated. They were watching time elapse. The U.S. was up two to one and they were sort of thinking, oh, well, look, this, we've got this in the bag. This game's almost over. Right. And because they didn't know about the, you know, the non-elapsed time, the, right. the extra time that gets added. So for people who don't understand that or don't understand why at the end of the game the game keeps going maybe you can explain that for them yeah well the game is the game is 90 minutes there's no big clock um on on, anywhere but the the referee keeps it and along you know in the course of the game people get injured it takes time for them to get stretchered off or or just for to be checked on and time also elapses every time they bring in a substitution so the referee apparently keeps that sort of time on his own watch and then announces it to the sideline guys, and they put up a sign saying, oh, there'll be four extra minutes or three extra minutes, whatever he's decided. And this is one of the parts of the game that I think is silly, and most Americans do, I think, that and the the diving and the the rolling around and all this stuff that um, you could fix. And and my problem is is just when they're doing it, they're doing it with the goal line technology this year finally, but we should just have a time clock. Why not? Mm-hmm. Um, and everyone knows exactly, you know, when there's an injury, the clock stops, then it starts again when we're going. So we all know exactly how much time is to play because that was tricky because we they announced four minutes of extra time. And then because the substitution, I think, took longer, they changed it to five minutes. And it's in that fifth minute, that extra minute that we got scored on. So it's, it's a little heartbreaking and frustrating for me, that, that part of it. And I just think- the general sort of power that they give to the referee Mm-hmm. I mean, I always say that the problem, one of the biggest problems with soccer is that the the ref has too much power, but not enough information. <laughs> right? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a huge field. He can't cover it. He can't see everything. There's no reason why, you know, some guy like myself sitting on his couch, you know, in his underwear should have a better perspective than the referee. But we do. But just because we have the, you know, the slow motion and all the different angles and and so often it's a you know it's either a penalty call or an offsides call something that determines a goal and goals are so hard to come by that it can it totally change the game and we should we need to have video playback let the referee take a look on the tough calls or let the teams challenge calls or 
you know, they should just have a guy watching TV. <laughs> Although, I mean, there's, there's already thing. enough complaints about the game being, from the point of view of an American spectator, yeah. um, slow or so nuanced as to be difficult to enjoy. I think if you add, you know, stoppage of play for video checkbacks and stuff like that, you're going to – I think soccer is going to be the last sport that ever has that. It, it sure – it maybe already is. Yeah, I don't know what else. But I, to me, it makes it would make a difference. And and like, no, don't stop it constantly. But on those big plays, give each team like two two opportunities during the game where they can challenge a call. And you know, it's just like we, they took a water break the other the other game. Yes. It didn't kill any momentum. It's the tension is still there. I, I'm I'm all for it. I'm, I'm I'm all for getting it right because yeah, that's the goal. To me. We're talking to, we're talking to Matthew Diffie. He's a writer and cartoonist, and his work is appearing right now in the New Yorker. There's a special little tab uh, going along the, the the front bar of the New Yorker website that says World Cup. Click on that, and you can you can see his work. I think yesterday's game also it, it had so many of the things in it that that make soccer, make international soccer what it what it is, including that notion that sometimes uh, you can uh, be playing the better game on the field and losing. I think Landon Donovan said that at, at uh, halftime. He said if you saw the U.S. Ghana game just as it was played on the field and didn't know the score you'd think Ghana probably won and if you saw the first half of that U.S. Portugal game you'd think that the U.S. was winning even though in fact at halftime they were down one zip uh, you know that sometimes it's that and, and, and I think also that as, as rabid as we all get about our, our partisanship about our nationalities there is something about the beauty of soccer that can even eclipse the heartbreak I mean you know Portugal's that goal that <laughs> that made it 2-2 it was was a really beautiful goal. It yeah, was hard yeah. not to think that, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you have to appreciate it um, for what it was, and and even the dramatic nature of it. I mean, it was literally, I think, in the last fifteen seconds. Of, oh yeah, the, of the overtime. You know, it was just. It was the last thing that happened. Basically, yeah, if you weren't an American, it would be an amazing, beautiful thing. Okay, so you got you got thirty seconds to tell us about uh, Germany. That's uh, that, that's our next um, uh, oh, mountain to climb. Germany's tough, aren't they? Mm-hmm. To me, they're the best. They play soccer, international soccer, better than anyone else. They don't have stars. You know, you can't name a German Ronaldo or Messi. And if you could, it's, you know, it's a defensive player, Oliver Kahn or Franz Beckenbauer back in the day. Their strikers are, you know, always leading scorers, but they're never prima donnas. They're just like, I am do my job. And I think that Klinsman is bringing that to the U.S. team, too. So I think we have a pretty good chance. Um... It'll be really interesting. I think it's going to be a riveting game, and I, I, I kind of part of me wishes we were we were well, already done and through the group. But Matthew, I also kind of like caring. Matthew, we, we got to wrap it up, but we yep. do encourage you to contact Matthew Liffey, sign up for his newsletter. We'll be back tomorrow. I'm Kyone Wolf. If the U.S. plays Germany in the World Cup, the loser gets Hasselhoff. Or keeps Hasselhoff. It depends if we're talking Knight Rider Hasselhoff or Cumberland Farms iced coffee commercial Hasselhoff.